Would you please pray with me? Loving God, you have so made us that we cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Give us a hunger for your word, and in that food satisfy our daily need. Through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. It was an awkward dinner party. Surely more awkward than either Jesus as guest or Simon as host would have anticipated. We don't know how Jesus felt in the first place about being a guest in Simon's home. We do know that Jesus spent time and ate with all different kinds of people, not just people who were disenfranchised and poor. But lately, he had been receiving so much criticism from the Pharisees, the religious authorities of his day, for eating with tax collectors and people who were considered sinners, that a lot might have been riding on this occasion when Jesus would be eating at the home of Simon, a Pharisee. Inviting Jesus to be a guest in his home could have been an opportunity for establishing greater mutual understanding and friendship, for discovering what they have in common, for overcoming the tension that had grown between Jesus and some of the religious authorities who were Simon's friends. A tension that was probably making things already pretty awkward. We don't know how the dinner party ended. Luke tells us only what happened at the beginning. Luke tells us right off the bat that a woman shows up who was not only uninvited, but also someone that everyone seems to have known was a sinner. Having heard where Jesus was, she shows up at Simon's home, bringing with her an alabaster jar of oil, scandalizing everyone at the party just by her presence. The woman makes things even more awkward by her behavior. Kneeling at Jesus' feet, the woman's eyes filled with tears, tears upon tears, so many that she washed his feet with them. And not having a cloth, she took down her long hair and wiped her tears from his feet. And then she anointed his feet with oil that must have cost her everything she had. The emotional intensity and intimacy of this scene must have felt awkward to the host and the other guests. The fact, too, that this woman poured out such loving hospitality to Jesus that far exceeded the hospitality that Simon, as host, offered him must also have been awkward. Well, this was not how that dinner party was supposed to go. Without intervening in a way that would make things yet more awkward, Simon wondered to himself, doesn't Jesus know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him? That she is a sinner? Lutheran pastor Nadia Bowles Weber founded a church in Denver called The House for All Sinners and Saints. One of the books she has written is a personal memoir that she entitled Pastrix, 
which means female pastor, the cranky, beautiful faith of a sinner and saint. Another book she has written is entitled Accidental Saints, Finding God in All the Wrong People. Reverend Nadia Bowles-Weber has taken seriously Jesus' mission as bringing spiritual healing to sinners as much as, perhaps even more than, to saints. Having spent years as an addict and a stand-up comic before being surprised by what felt like a call to be a minister to people on the underside of life, she writes and speaks frankly and boldly about her personal failures, recovery from addiction, grace, and faith. And she preaches a gospel of love to junkies, drag queens, and outsiders. In an interview with journalist Krista Tippett for the radio program On Being, Nadia Bowles-Weber told this story. At a time when 40 to 45 people, mostly urban, hip, young adults, had been attending her church, she had been invited to preach at Red Rock's Easter sunrise services to a crowd of 10,000 or so people. The Denver Post ran a front page, full page, picture and story about her preaching on Easter. At six feet tall with spiky hair and her body covered in tattoos, her image, along with her frank and bold gospel message, attracted a lot of attention. Telling this story, she said, we doubled in size like overnight. And we were excited because we were really struggling to grow. But what happened was that it was like the wrong kind of people. I mean, it was the wrong kind of different for us, right? Like some churches might freak out if the drag queens show up, but these were like bankers wearing dockers, right? <laughs> this actually wasn't a joke. I freaked out. And I kind of went on this little rampage about it. Like, wait a minute. They could show up to any mainline Protestant church in the city and see a room full of people that looked just like them, right? Why are they coming here? It was almost like, oh, this is just so neat. This church is so neat. They're so creative. You know, and I just thought, you're ruining our thing. You are, like, messing it up, man. <laughs> and at the same time, we had just moved, and that was the first service with all these new people in our new place. And it was like the stately, historic neighborhood instead of the grungy, hipster neighborhood we came from. And I turned to this woman who was a deacon in our church, and I was like, we have got to get out of this neighborhood because it is attracting the wrong element. <laughs> I would call my friends and I would rant more about it. I called one of my friends who has a similar type of church in Minneapolis. And I was like, dude, have you ever had normal people take over your church? <laughs> I tell him the whole story, expecting him to be sympathetic. And instead, he goes, because our community holds this value of welcoming the stranger. Yeah, you guys are really good at welcoming the stranger when it's a young transgender kid. But sometimes the stranger looks like your mom and dad. I was like, you're supposed to be my friend. Click. <laughs> 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 so 
So I scheduled this meeting to talk about the demographic change in our community so that the people who showed up would find out what the church is about and then leave. And we had the meeting and the people who were new told us who they were and why they were there so that the people who have been there from the beginning could hear and then say what the church is about. And then everyone went around in a circle and Asher said, look, as the transgender kid who was welcomed into this community, I just want to go on the record as saying, I'm glad there are people who look like my mom and dad here because they love me in a way my mom and dad can't. This was another turning point for Nadia Bolsweber, and it was a turning point for the house for all sinners and saints. Since that turning point, she described her church like this. You walk in now, and you will see a convicted felon serving communion to a statewide elected official next to a teenager with pink hair holding the baby of a soccer mom from the suburbs. And I thought the weirdness of my congregation was going to be diluted, right? It is only weirder now. You walk in and you go, I am unclear what all these people have in common. <laughs> the truth, of course, is that we have so much in common. The Protestant reformer Martin Luther articulated it well when summarizing the Apostle Paul, he wrote that the Christian is simul justus et peccator, simultaneously saint and sinner. Nadia Bowles-Weber understands this to mean that all of us have an enormous capacity for destruction of ourselves and other people. And all of us have this enormous capacity for kindness, love, and forgiveness. At all times, we are simultaneously both sinner and saint. The Academy of American Poets published a poem written by poet Chen Chen entitled, I Invite My Parents to a Dinner Party. It's a poem that quite moves me because it narrates a dinner party unfolding in such an awkward way. It brings you along to consider the awkwardness from many different angles. You may feel the tension simultaneously from the perspective of the poet who writes in the first person, I, and also from the perspective of the one who is annoying the poet. Let me read for you now the poem, I Invite My Parents to a Dinner Party. In the invitation, I tell them for the 17th time, the fourth in writing, that I am gay. In the invitation, I include a picture of my boyfriend and write, you have met him two times, but this time, you will ask him things other than, can you pass the whatever? You will ask him about him. You will enjoy dinner. You will be enjoyable. Please RSVP. They RSVP. They come. They sit at the table. 
and ask my boyfriend the first of the conversation starters I slip them upon arrival. How is work going? I'm like the kid in Home Alone, orchestrating every movement of a proper family as if a pair of scary yet deeply incompetent burglars is watching from the outside. My boyfriend responds in his chipper way. I pass my father a bowl of fishball soup. So comforting, isn't it? My mother smiles her best, sitting with her son's boyfriend who is a boy smile. I smile my hooray for doing a little better smile. Everyone eats soup. Then my mother turns to me, whispers in Mandarin, is he coming with you for Thanksgiving? My good friend is, and she wouldn't like this. I'm like the kid in Home Alone, pulling on the string that makes my cardboard mother more motherly, except she is not cardboard. She is already exceedingly motherly, waiting for my answer. While my father opens up a Boston Globe, when the invitation clearly stated, no security blankets. I'm like the kid in Home Alone, except the home is my apartment, and I'm much older and not alone, and not the one who needs to learn, has to Remind me, what's in that recipe again, my boyfriend says to my mother, as though they have always easily talked. As though no one has told him many times what a nonlinear slapstick meets slasher flick meets psychological pit he is now co-starring in. <laughs> Remind me, he says, to our family. Clearly, a lot was riding on this dinner party. Perhaps a better way of putting it is that the dinner party itself was a delicate hinge between a potential disappointment and a hope that there could be some fluency between his parents and his boyfriend. Instead of calling the poem, My Parents Disappoint Me, or I Tried to Make My Parents Accept Me, the poet Chen Chen entitled it, I invite my parents to a dinner party. For me, it does not take much to stretch my imagination to see such a scene in which the parents get schooled by the child. For years now, on our way to any event with her peers, especially those peers who matter something to her, I have grown accustomed to receiving explicit instructions from my daughter. If it were possible to instruct me on every specific thing I could or could not say, she might like to do so. But since it's not, I received the more general strict orders not to say or do anything to embarrass her and definitely not to tell anyone that I'm a minister. <laughs> And just to yank her chain, I sometimes tell her that as soon as I arrive to the party, I'm going to say, everyone, let us pray. 
I get it. I have noticed it too, that sometimes having a minister around can cause other people to feel hindered from letting loose, being carefree in social situations like dinner parties. It can feel awkward. Under the surface of the awkwardness, I think, is this whole sin accounting business with which, unfortunately, some religious people and institutions have gotten and can get preoccupied. This preoccupation with what counts for sin and what doesn't, who is a sinner and who is a saint, is a dead end. It will not generate any kind of party, much less the kingdom of God. Whatever Jesus saw this, wherever Jesus saw this preoccupation, he rejected it, just as he did at Simon's dinner party. Jesus taught us instead that our vocation is to be loving and forgiving, just as we have been loved and forgiven by God. To be clear, it is certainly not the case that religious institutions and religious people alone can regrettably get caught up in this whole sin accounting business. Jesus knew this as he was dying on the cross at the hands of not just the Jewish religious authorities, the Roman state, and the crowd of people. Hanging on the cross, Jesus says, forgive them, all of them for they do not know what they are doing. On the cross, God would rather be there than in the sin accounting business. The language of forgiving and being forgiven, the language of love, we may never get it quite right. No matter how much we try to school one another or dictate the terms, there may be awkwardness. That we try again and again, however, matters. That we invite, come, and show up. That we show hospitality. That we get in proximity of one another. That we appreciate each other's efforts, as awkward as it may be, goes a long way in becoming fluent in the language of love, the language spoken in God's kingdom. Amen.